The sermon text reading is from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15 and 18, 21 through 35. Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who was owed ten thousand talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, his master became the servant, released him, and forgave him of the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of the servants who owed him one hundred denarii and seized him, and he began choking him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went on to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, as had I had mercy on you. And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do every one of you to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Called it, Lord, teach us to pray. And we have been looking at prayer, as you know, indirectly. Of course, the first week we actually looked at the Lord's Prayer itself. And then we've been quoting the Lord's Prayer as sort of a a back commentary, as it were, on what we're doing, which is to look at different passages that actually only indirectly have to deal with prayer. And that's because what we've been saying is we want to look at the attitudes of prayer. So when we think about how do we actually pray, we actually look at attitudes. We actually look at what are the things that either uh, propel us towards prayer or keep us from praying. And this morning we're looking at one that I would, I would argue this morning is probably the most difficult part of the Lord's Prayer because it's about forgiveness. And I don't know of anything that's more hard-hitting than that. And as you can see here in the passage, Jesus doesn't hold any punches back, does he? It's, he's, in fact, it sounds almost harsh here towards the end, and we're going to look at that. But I want to suggest to you that's because we have such a critical need to understand what is prayer as it relates to forgiveness. Our inability keeps us from a relationship with God. And so this morning, we want to address some of those places of pain that maybe you have right now, or those places where you lack peace, either because of something that's been done towards you, or perhaps you would say, no, it's actually my relationship or my fault in that relationship. And so this morning, we want to ask the Father to close those gaps relationally in our hearts, both with Him as well as with others. And to get there, what we need to do is we need to look at uh, this passage through the prism of a couple different questions. Number one, just as I said a second ago, 
why is it so critical? That's the first thing. Why, why is forgiveness as a practice, as a discipline, so critical to our lives and not just a prayer? But secondly here, how does actually forgiveness work? Right? If, if this is so critical, to, if it's life and death, as I'm going to argue, man, it behooves us to really understand then, how do we actually do forgiveness? Then finally, how do we actually relate it to prayer? And as you're going to see, it is critical. It is life and death, literally, in terms of how we learn how to pray. And so let's jump in with the first thing this morning, why it's so critical. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to do some bookends here. We're going to look at the very front of this passage and then the very end, because what you're going to see is the bookends are the place where Jesus says how critical it is. Looking at verses 21 and 22 to start. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Earlier in Matthew 18, some of you will know this, there's a, a pretty well-known passage where, where Jesus says, look, if someone's in trouble, if someone's in a place of sin where they need to be rescued, here's how you, you do it. And so if you've been violated, what you do is you go to that person and you say, hey, I need to talk with you. This is significant. And so we call that the Matthew 18 process quite often. So, so Peter's listening to this, listening to how it is that people are brought back into community and you can hear the wheels turning, right? You can almost see the wheels turning in Peter's mind. Peter is saying to himself, all right, well, how often do I have to do this? And so rabbinical teaching at the time taught that you had to forgive someone up to three times. So I would argue this morning that Peter's probably an Enneagram 3 achiever. And from other passages, you know that. Peter's always trying to be the best at what he does amongst the other disciples. You know that, right? And so Peter's saying to himself, well, the rabbis are saying three, but I'm going to increase the forgiveness output by about 230% here. I'm going to seven, right? And so he's feeling pretty magnanimous right now. He's feeling pretty generous. He's like, look, rabbis don't have anything on me. 230% increase in forgiveness production, says Peter. And so what does Jesus say in response to Peter saying seven? He says, Peter, you've got a math problem. You have no idea. The second you start counting, you're part of a different culture than mine. Here's what's fascinating. Jesus responds by saying 70 times seven. Why is that important? Or 77, depending on the translation. In the Scriptures, seven is the number of perfection. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying, I just knocked it out of the park. It doesn't get any better than this, right, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, Peter, 70 times seven. In other words, limitless. 70 times seven, multiplying anything by perfection is sort of moving towards infinity. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, the kingdom culture, my kingdom, the culture of forgiveness, there is no limit to forgiveness. You don't reach a certain point and say, well, too bad. You've had, an, you've had enough opportunity. No, no. And why, why is that so important? Well, that's the reason for the parable we're going to look at in a second. But I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes for a second. You're, you're feeling pretty magnanimous. And from your vantage point, from a human vantage point, that does feel pretty generous. But what Jesus is saying essentially is you look at the difference here between Atlanta and New York City, and it feels far away from your vantage point. But if you're at the edge of the solar system and you're looking back, 
at the difference between New York and Atlanta, it's infinitesimally small. It, it means it's a, it's a ludicrous statement. That's what Jesus is saying. Your vantage point is wrong. You have a math problem here. And I, I want to suggest that, that even though Peter looks generous on the outside, the reality is because he's still counting, because he says there's a limit to grace, because there's a limit to forgiveness, he's living in a closed universe. Now, if you're brand new to City Church, you've not been here very often, that may be unfamiliar language. What I mean by closed universe is the belief that the material world is all that there is. And in a world where you are it, this world is all that there is, justice is up to you. And if there is no God, then who is God? You are. Someone's got to determine right from wrong. Someone's got to determine what is true and what is untrue, what is good and what is bad. And so in a world where justice, payment for sins, is at your fingertips, you're in control, you get to determine how often someone deserves forgiveness. That's the key. And Jesus says, you need to blow the lid off a closed universe. If you're going to operate from that, you're operating within a culture of vengeance. Now, again, Peter looks generous, but I'll make no mistake about it. This is how critical that is. As soon as you start counting, you're counting towards vengeance. It's just a matter of time before you, that train arrives at the station. And it, we live in a culture day. Hear me on this. Man, cancel culture. Right? Everyone's now talking about cancel culture. No one even used that term a few years ago. Now we all talk about it. But cancel culture has been around since the beginning of time. It's just that we, we've come up with a terminology or a term to really help us understand what's going on. But the reality is, I mean, we know this. You, if, if someone crosses a certain boundary, there's no coming back from that. It doesn't matter how many mea culpas you have. You're not coming back from that. Right? And, and, and here's the key. That benchmark of where that line of no return, that point of no return, it changes with every generation, doesn't it? And so generations ago, there really wasn't a line of demarcation when it came to racism. And now it's completely changed, and that's a good thing. But there are other lines that we've crossed and are moving in the different directions, sexuality and so forth. And so my point in saying that is we've always been a culture of vengeance. We've always said you can count. That there's a point where if you cross that line, you're going to pay. That's what we mean by vengeance. So the first problem here, why it's so critical, is that we have a math problem. But here's the, the second problem, really. And I think it's even more critical. And that's eternity is at stake, Jesus says. So right after Peter responds, or Jesus responds to Peter, there's the parable. And of course, the parable says that there are two servants, and one servant had this massive debt. And, and so that debt is forgiven by the king. Very graciously so. But then that servant turns around, and there's a much, much smaller debt, and he refuses to, to show mercy and compassion towards that second servant. So the king gets wind of it, and of course the king is ticked off. And the king says, you know what? Uh, you're going to pay for that, essentially, since you want to operate by those standards. Here you go. Now listen to the commentary of Jesus in verse 35. Remember I said bookend. We began 21, now we end with 35. Here's what Jesus says after the parable. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying something that's pretty hard, right? Now here's what he's not saying, by the way. He's not saying, well, if you don't forgive, you merit hell. But if you do forgive, well, now you merit heaven. 
It's more like what I said a few weeks ago regarding Matthew 25, just a few chapters later. If you remember what I was talking about, Jesus is there talking about those uh, who end up in heaven and those who end up in hell. And he tells a parable. They're called the sheep and the goats. And he says, anyone who has given me a cup of cold water, when I was thirsty, you, you, you gave me a drink. When I was hungry, you, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And then those sheep respond by saying, if you remember, they say, Lord, when did we do this for you? And he says, no, when you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. Now, he wasn't saying, well, when you feed the poor, you then merit heaven. Remember what I said last or a couple weeks ago. So what happens there is that he's saying, no, it's evidence that you belong to me. The very act of loving the poor and doing it from the place of the heart, from right motivation, reflects my kingdom. That's what's happening here. He says, if you live in a culture where you are incapable, as it were, to forgive, it's evidence that you don't belong to me. And where, where you are able to do it, it's evidence that you do belong to me. And some of you might be saying, but wait a minute, I, I, I can't do this perfectly. I've never done this perfectly. There are times in my life where it's not the issue of have you ever failed to do this. I mean, we've all failed at this. The question is pattern. That's the key. Remember, the Lord's Prayer is a pattern prayer. It is a model that Jesus sets out. The question you should be asking right now is, is there a pattern in my life where I refuse to forgive others? If there is a pattern in your life, you should hear Jesus on this. He says, it may be that you don't actually belong to me. You've been playing the the religious long game, but you actually don't know who I am. Because if you knew who I was you know I'm a God of forgiveness. You see how that plays out here. And so that's why it is so significant. If you want to demand the rights of other people to pay for their sins against you, God says, well, then you need to play that game with me. It's a long game as well. Look at verse 34. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. How long will it take? Eternity. It's it's, it's a debt that's so big that you can never pay it off. And so if you want to live in a culture where people have to pay for their sins, you also need to live in that same culture, Jesus says. You can't straddle two different kingdoms. When I lived in Florida, some of you know I went to seminary in Florida. I lived there for five years. And, of course, every fall, the snowbirds would come down. And they knew what they were doing. They were like, I want to miss the winter in the north. Right? And so they would stay for a few months, and then in the springtime they would leave and go back home, or wherever they were for six months out of the year. It's not really a home. And so they, they go there. Why? Because summers in central Florida are living hell. Okay? So I'm just saying, I'm putting it out there. Like, now, I'm not saying like Miami where you're on the beach. I mean, that's, you get the ocean breeze. But when you're in central Florida, there's no breeze in July and August. And it is a living hell. Right? And so... And so Residents of Florida know that. Like, they actually live there. They, they belong to the culture of Florida. And they don't straddle two kingdoms like the snowbirds do. You see, Jesus is saying, you got to pick. You, you can't live here some, like, it, it's one or the other. You, you belong to one kingdom or another here, you see. And, and look, listen to this. Speaking of a living hell, you don't even have to wait for eternity to experience hell, Jesus says here. Let me ask you this. What is bitterness? What is resentment? Or what does it mean to hold a grudge? Bitterness has been defined this way. Bitterness is taking poison and expecting the other person to die. Bitterness is you 
taking in. It's like a cancer. Bitterness, holding a grudge, resentment is holding on to something, expecting that by holding on to something, that other person's going to see the, their, their wayward ways and, and repent or something like that. No, it just kills you. It kills, it kills your heart is what it does here. That's a living hell. Frederick Buechner, Christian writer, put it this way. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain you're giving back to them, in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down at this feast is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. The question I have for you this morning is, Whose feast are you at? Either grace will consume you or bitterness will. It's a foregone conclusion, friends. That's how critical forgiveness is. And so if this morning you're hearing this and you're saying, I want the feast of the king that brings life rather than death, the skeleton. How do I get there? So let's talk a little bit about the pathway. Two things I want to talk about here. What do you need to practice forgiveness? Here's the first one, compassion. The very first thing that you need is deep abiding compassion. I want to read to you the first half of the parable again because I want you to see how important that is. Verses 23 through 27 say, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The wording here in the English is a little bit unfortunate because in our modern day, we don't think of pity as a, as a good thing, Right. Well, the original translation here can mean compassion. In other words, what it means is that your heart goes out. Empathy is what that means there, compassion. By the way, the the word compassion is a compound word, with passion. And passion in the Scriptures means something different than what we think it means. It means suffering. Compassion with suffering. You're going to see why that's so important here in just a second. But what you see from the king is his response to this servant who has no ability to pay back this, right, is compassion. It's to, to let him go, as the text says. And I want you to juxtapose that with, us, with me just for a second to see how important compassion is, because what's the alternative? It's in verse 26. Because what happens there is he says, I've got this. This, this servant who, who has to, and by the way, in today's economy, it's trillions of dollars. That's how much 10,000 talents was worth trillions of dollars, this servant, this lowly servant in the bureaucracy of the king says, don't worry about it, I'm going to pay you back. Now, what does that sound like to you? Arrogance. What I want you to see is that the heart behind every inability to forgive is arrogance. It's it's like this. Imagine that someone that you know destroys your reputation. And you get wind of it and you confront them. And the response to you is, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Here's $50. 
What would you do with that? And you had that perplexed look on your face. You're like, oh, that's not enough. How about $1,000? You would say, it's not about the money, man. It has nothing. Like, you think that you can purchase, you know, uh, guilt-free? You can somehow purchase forgiveness by, by paying me off? You would say, that's not how it works. You, you've destroyed my reputation. There's no amount of money. Remember, we would say as Christians that because we're made the image of God, what are we? We're priceless. You can't put a price tag on your reputation. You can't put a price tag on your dignity. And you're saying that for a certain price that we're good here, we're, we're even, we're, we're uh, equal on this. Absolutely not. You would say that there's something that's wrong with your math here again. You're, you're counting. And what I want you to see here is with the servant, he's in a position where because of pride and arrogance, he feels like he's different from the second servant. You can see that pretty clearly, right? That despite the fact that, that the second servant's uh, uh, debt is so much smaller than the first one, he feels like he's more worthy of mercy than the second one. You see that? And uh, Tim Keller was incredibly helpful on this, former pastor of Redeemer Church in New York. I think his work on understanding forgiveness is some of the best out there among theologians and pastors. And one of the, I heard this, he said this in a sermon one time. He said, on the streets of New York City, uh, there are people who do street art, and they create these caricatures. And so probably you've seen this before. If you, if you can maybe go to Disney World or even if you go to Six Flags. My girls, I took them there one time and, and they watched this caricature artist do a caricature. Now, what happens with a caricature? In a caricature, they take some element of your face and they emphasize it, don't they? Right? And so they take your ears or they take your nose, they take your mouth, they take some part of your face and they make that the focal point. And what Keller says is that in our arrogance, what we do is that in our, we have a superiority complex and we make the, the, per, the perpetrator of their sin towards us, we make their sin the everything. And we reduce them down to that. Much like you're reduced down to your ears in a caricature. Much like you're reduced down to your nose or to your mouth. And we focus on that. Keller says what we do is that we focus on the thing that makes you less than. And so someone lies to you, and you say, you're a liar. You reduce them down to that. They steal from you. You're a thief. You reduce them down to that point. And so what Keller says is our problem is that we go to superiority. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian and a work called Exclusion and Embrace, he watched genocide take place among his people in former Yugoslavia. He watched the rapes. He watched the pillaging. He was deeply angry and bitter for a season of time until he felt released from that. In his book, which is really honestly autobiographical, he says this, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. That is precisely what the first servant does. I'm worthy of mercy because I'm not a sinner the way that the second servant is. You see, that's the arrogance behind our inability to forgive. Make no mistake about it. That's why this is so critical, because it's our heart. Remember, Jesus says in verse 35, you must forgive from your heart. And so if your heart is closed off, if it's, if it's impenetrable, essentially, then it won't change because grace cannot also penetrate that heart. His forgiveness can't penetrate the heart that's closed off, you see. And so what I think it leads to here is the second thing. If compassion is the key, first, that you receive compassion. By the way, I should have said this. So important. It is right to pursue justice when you've been violated. This is not an issue of, well, should I pursue justice or not? But compassion, 
before justice is necessary. Because if you pursue justice without compassion, it becomes vengeance. Your pursuit of justice must first begin with compassion. Your heart must go out to the person that's asking you for forgiveness first. Because without that, it dissolves into vengeance. But here's what it leads to secondly, the compassion. That is, you begin to count the cost for what it truly is. I mentioned that the first debtor, the first servant, his debt was in the trillions. The second debt was about $12,000 in today's economy. It's significant. I think most of us in here, if we were $12,000, we would keep an eye on that, right? We would, we would probably ask for the money back, you know, unless we were Warren Buffett or something like that, probably. But for most of us in here, we would say, no, $12,000 is pretty significant. But compared to zillions of dollars, what is $12,000? And so the first thing that we see happen here is that the cost is counted. But here's the most important thing I can share with you this morning. Here's the process. Remember I said there's a process towards forgiveness. First, it begins with compassion. Second, counting the cost. How do you do that? Here's what you need to understand about, about, um, about sin and its violation of you. When you have been violated, two things need to happen in order to repair the relationship. Number one, you have to count the cost in terms of what the actual violation that's been done towards you. For instance, think about it this way. Imagine that one day you're really angry with me and you decide you want to destroy my mailbox. Okay? Now, by the way, it's a, it's a brick stone mailbox, so good luck with that, number one. Number two, you're going to probably need your car, so you're going to damage your own property in order to do that. But suffice to say, let's say you are committed to this project, and so you come and you destroy my mailbox. Now, two things have happened. First of all, my mailbox is gone, right? My property has been violated, okay? And if you come to me after this, you cool down a little bit, and you say, Scott, I really feel bad about what I did to your mailbox. And I, can, and I can see that you truly are grieving. You really are broken and you are repentant, truly repentant for what you've done to me. And you say, forgive me, Scott, for what I've done. And then you say, and I say, I, I forgive you. Then, then you say, look, I will pay back. Okay, I will pay back the cost to repair your, your mailbox. Now, that's, that's justice, right? That if I say... Yes, it, the cost is $1,500. I'm requiring $1,500 repair. I, you've been forgiven, but you also pursue justice. But here's the kicker. What if instead I said, no, it's okay. I'll pay for it as well. Suddenly, forgiveness looks like something else. You see, it is appropriate to pursue justice. But what does God do? God doesn't require payment after forgiveness. I heard Mike say this last week to our, our class. He says, in, in, there's a double gift that comes in the forgiveness that God offers. First, he forgives us of our sin, but then he reconciles us. He brings us into his kingdom. Listen to Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transfers to the kingdom of his beloved son, reconciliation, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Redemption being a financial word for payment. Not only, has your, uh, not only has he paid for your sin, he's reconciled you into a relationship with him. Some of you will ask this question, and I think it's appropriate. Some of you will ask the question, Scott, if you only knew my situation that I'm thinking about right now, if you only understood the abuse that was committed towards me, if you don't only understand how evil that person was that did that thing to me years ago, 
You would say, how is that possible? Reconciliation. And here's the answer. The answer is, this side of heaven, it could be that there won't be reconciliation. But that doesn't mean you can't forgive. Wait a minute, Scott. What do you mean by that? There's a difference between what's called the vertical and the horizontal. If someone has harmed you, and they don't see that they've harmed you, they don't see that they've violated the, the, the dignity of what it means to be a human being. Instead, maybe they mock you every time that you vulnerably come asking that they would see the harm done towards you. Some of you, I know this because I know your stories. This is your story. What do you do in a situation like that? You take them vertically. You take them to God. And before God, you renounce your rights to make them pay. And so this is how you're cleansed of bitterness, by the way. This is, this is how you let go of the resentment. What does the text say? It says that after the king uh, canceled the debt, he'd let them go. You have to let the perpetrator go. Does that mean, Scott, then I, I need to like, pursue a relationship with them? Not necessarily. If they don't want forgiveness, they don't see a need for forgiveness, as one of my mentors uh, taught me on this, he says, to offer them forgiveness where they don't want forgiveness or they think there's no need for forgiveness is cheap grace. Now, that could be tough to hear. It could be that some of you have been taught differently than that. But as I study the Scriptures, I think that what it means is that you renounce your right to get even with someone by bringing them to the Father. But it means that if there's a broken relationship where you cannot build trust, at least not yet, you don't necessarily go right back into that relationship. You wait and see. You build trust over time. That's what reconciliation means. Forgiveness is the first step towards reconciliation. Your hope should be that towards that perpetrator, they should experience, you should experience reconciliation with them one day. But don't make it cheap grace. Don't make it cheap forgiveness. Do it on the Lord's terms that he might see, that they might see. Uh, the error of their ways, so to speak. Here's the second question I'm often asked in a passage like this, and it's this. How do I know, practically speaking, Scott, that I've actually done the forgiveness? Because you're saying here at the beginning that if I'm not doing this, I'm not leaning into the gospel, and it could mean that I don't even have a pattern of that in my life. And what does that mean for me for, me for eternity? So it's a significant question. How do I know that I've actually forgiven someone? And here's what I, I think a good test can be. I call it the grudge test. The grudge test is this. The person that has come to you for forgiveness and you have said to them, I forgive you, what happens when they experience a celebration in their life? What happens when they uh, have a job promotion? What happens when they experience some significant joy in their life financially or relationally and so forth? What does it do to you? If your response in those situations is a sense of resentment, a grudge that goodness is happening to them, you haven't fully forgiven yet. You're still on the journey towards forgiveness. But if you, in hearing that, can say to someone, or in your heart of hearts at least say, good for you, and you mean it. It doesn't mean that, that you're going to become best friends with that person. Well, but what it means is that you can celebrate that joys have. And why? Because you realize God has given you first joy because he's first forgiven you. Therefore, how can you withhold it from someone else? I know that, again, remember how I started this sermon. I said, this is the hardest part of the Lord's Prayer. One of the hardest teachings in all of Christianity is learning and practicing forgiveness. And if your life is anything like mine, it probably raises questions for you. But what about this situation? What about that? The pastors here on staff, the leaders, elders, we would love to have a conversation with you if this is a place of deep abiding struggle for you right now. But we're about to take the table in a second. And one of the things that, that Jesus or Paul says 
in the scriptures, he says, do not take the table in an unworthy manner. If there's something that's keeping you from the table of grace, of forgiveness, first deal with it before you come to the table. That's a biblical principle there. And so let me encourage you, as we go to the table in a second, do not take the table. If there's a place where you're unwilling to forgive based upon the requirements of what forgiveness looks like here in the scriptures. Again, difficult, but it's so important, so critical. So here's the last thing. How does this relate to prayer? And what I want to suggest to you this morning is prayer is the method by which we learn how to forgive other people. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying the key to actual forgiveness is the practice of it in our prayers. You cannot pray to the Lord. You cannot pray consistently. Uh, you cannot pray with a relationship with God in mind without getting to that place of forgiveness, he says. And so let me suggest there are three steps here, and this will be like a minute long in length here, very quick here. First, when you've been violated and you say to yourself, I'm ready now to forgive, there, I think there's three things happen. First one is you draw a circle around yourself. Here's what I mean by that. When we, were, we had a marriage ministry, the directors remember this quite well, re-engage ministry. And this is one of the, the principles that was taught in re-engage ministry was that when you have been violated and you want to deal with that in the other person, the very first thing that you do is you draw a circle around yourself and you deal with everything in the circle first. In other words, you deal with your own heart before you go to them. This is that principle again of that you've received so much compassion first. Deal with it first before you go Yesterday, I was with one of my girls, and, and they did something that upset me. And, and, um, and it, it was a legitimate thing that they had done that needed to be dealt with. But, but my response to them was really harsh. And, and, um, and we're sitting in the car. There's silence, and uh, it's, it's tense. And I literally could hear the, word, the words, draw the circle, as I was sitting in the car. And, and, I, and I started thinking about what, what my daughter did, and then my response was harsh in my anger. And I thought, my gosh, you talk about caricature. I took their very small thing that they did, and I, made it, and I conflated. I made it something big, when the reality is the big thing was me. And so in the car, I, I, I just confirmed. I said, do you feel like I was harsh with you? She said, yes. And, and I said, will you forgive me? And so the very first principle, I think, is that we don't see what they've done to us before. We look at ourselves, we draw the circle, and we say, is there anything within the circle that needs to be dealt with first? But having done that, having dealt with the circle second, is you count the cost again. And you see, how much more have you been forgiven? Because sin has been forgiven. Like what keeps you separate from God, that has been forgiven. You've been then reconciled back into relationship with Him. It builds compassion. When you see the kindness of God, Towards you, so you see the smile on his face towards you. It changes then how you relate to the other person. So it allows you to go, maybe not literally with a smile on your face, but at least with compassion, kindness in your heart. And it leads to the third thing, and as you bring them before the Father. Why? Because you were brought before the Father first. Draw the circle. You see the gospel. How much it cost forgiveness for you. And how small and infinitesimally small their act violation towards you is relative to that. And finally, you bring them to the Lord. 
In a second, Mike's going to get up here and does what he always does here, prepares for the table, confession as well. But like the last several weeks, I'm going to ask you to take one minute. Now, this time, not an index card. The last couple of weeks, you've had that index card. You've been writing on it. I hope it's been profitable for you uh, the last 14 days or so. But here's what I want you to do in this minute of silence. I want you to think of one person in your life right now, one person that you have been stuck with. Maybe you're the perpetrator. Maybe you're on the other side of that. And what needs to happen is that you need to pursue forgiveness. But, but, but for a lot of us in here, we're going to think about someone where we're out of sorts with. And, and the honesty, after 30 minutes of listening to this, you're saying to yourself, there's work to be done here. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take them to the Father. But I want you to first draw the circle. I want you and then to see the cost, right, of what forgiveness is according to what Jesus says here. So is there anyone in your life right now that you're thinking of that comes to mind? I want you to take one minute here before we go to confession in the table. I want you to bring to the Father. I want you to practice this. And if you have questions, again, we'd love to sit down and talk with you further as elders of the church, as leaders of the church, how we practice this. It's a daily occurrence. It literally was for me yesterday. But may you be blessed on this journey of forgiveness because the deeper in you go into learning forgiveness and practicing it, the richer your relationship with the Father will be and the richer your faith will be as a result. So let's now go to prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your promise that if we can create a culture of forgiveness around us, if we can practice that, it is evidence that we belong to you and that our long-term trajectory, eternity, is good. Father, let us never be arrogant. Let us never believe in our heart of hearts that somehow uh, this person, even though we want mercy, this person is not worthy of it. Father, where there be a true desire for forgiveness, may we not hold back. But Lord, teach our hearts. This is a hard, hard teaching and not necessarily something that happens just overnight. And so, Lord, we pray for kindness. We pray for more compassion towards us. In the places where we're stuck, be kind towards us. Be compassionate towards us. Holy Spirit, gently turn us towards a culture of forgiveness. Lord, may we not hold out. And so we surrender our rights to you, for you own us. We were forever indebted to you, and you took away our debt. Lord, make the gospel true and clear to us. For any friends in this congregation who are listening to this and you're saying, you know, I don't yet know that I have that sort of relationship with the Father. You call him Father. I would love to be at a place where I could call him more than generic God, but Father, Lord, let it be. Let it not be too long. Let it be soon. Let your grace and your mercy flood their hearts, Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.
And friends, now we continue in worship through praying and confessing our sins to the Father, as Scott talked about. And again, we want to remind you that confession is really far down in the Lord's Prayer. He says, even before you confess, even before you ask for forgiveness, you call me Father. That no matter what you've done, no matter what you bring into the room, He is inviting you to see yourself as his son or daughter. And so let's call him Father as we enter this prayer of confession. Let's pray together as his church. Father, forgive us for our failure to forgive others. We fail to see how great our debt of sin is, and yet you paid off our debts in Christ. Teach our hearts to be generous with forgiveness regarding those who have harmed us. Where there is resentment and bitterness, replace it with love and compassion where there is lack of desire for forgiveness on the part of those who have harmed us, we ask you to change their hearts. Teach our hearts wisdom, the wisdom to maintain appropriate boundaries with those who have harmed us, while longing for reconciliation to the one day happen in full. Amen. Scripture says if we confess our sins, that, that he is faithful and just to forgive us, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Receive his forgiveness. Walk in his peace today. And now, friends, we go to the table. And the table is something we do weekly. It's a ritual, right? It's every week we come. And it's something Jesus set up before he left. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so the table for us is something weekly that where we share a common bread. We drink from one cup right? We have one Lord. And what it's saying to us is that everyone in here is needy of him. We all need him. We all need him to feed us. We all need him to forgive us. And so as Scott said, it it would be, if if you're unwilling to forgive this table of reconciliation, he, he he would say, don't eat today. Go be reconciled first and then come here. And that's why we do it weekly, is that we're constantly checking in and constantly pursuing forgiveness with each other. And today, if you really are feeling hurt, would you allow Jesus to forgive you and forgive those that have have hurt you? But the table is the place where you get to come and be fed, to be nurtured, to be nourished, so you have something to give others, right? That's what the table is about. So with those helping the communion as they come forward, I want to just to remind you that um, if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, You don't yet believe that he is Lord and Savior of your life. It'd be inauthentic for you to have communion with a God that's not yet your God. We'd ask that you would please withhold from the table. But instead, there are prayers in the back of the bulletin that hopefully can give voice to stuff stirring inside of you. And if you'd like to talk about that in the future, we'd love to. But if you're a member of a a church somewhere and and you are a member here, please come take this table and, and be nourished by that here. But on the night, Jesus was to be betrayed after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he raised it in front of his disciples and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink of it as often as you come together. And we join with the saints who throughout the ages proclaim this great mystery, which goes like this. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Brothers and sisters, when you're ready, come and feast with your God.